You are listening to National Security Law Today. Let's talk a bit about some terminology. One is in the loop, on the loop, and out of the loop. What are these things and why on earth should it matter to a policymaker? Sure, thank you. First, let me pick up one thing that I should have mentioned. I didn't mention some of the national security applications of AI, which of course should be our focus. We're talking about logistics, intelligence, medical in a national security context. We're talking about empowering maintenance schedules so you know when to repair something, not just doing it when it needs to be repaired, not when you do it on a regular schedule. Why am I saying that? Because there's so much attention paid to lethal autonomous weapon systems in the national security sphere. AI is already here and empowering many national security functions, but not weapons necessarily. We're talking about an intel. It's an essential national security intelligence tool, logistics, personnel, and some of the backroom stuff that is just as important to fielding a national security capacity. And we need to focus on that as well. I'm not a big fan of the loopiness in the loop, which presumably means making a decision rather than having the AI make a decision on the loop, which presumably means monitoring what's going on and having the capacity to intervene and and alter the outcome and out of the loop, suggesting in some way that the AI is going to work in an autonomous manner, depending on what it's been programmed to do. Here's why I don't care for the loop. There is always a human in the loop. And that human should be held accountable for what the AI does or does not do. That human might be the person who designed the software. It might be the military commander who, under the doctrine of command responsibility, is responsible for what the weapon system or the instrument does or does not do. My point for national security lawyers and for policymakers is Don't fall for the trap of saying there's not going to be anybody in the loop or there's always going to be someone on the loop. Figure out exactly who that person is, what their role is, and when they will assert that role. The person may assert the human may be in the loop in the design of the software, but not at the moment the software is actually employed. And we as lawyers need to help people focus on the precise points of decision and outcomes where the human is in the loop, on the loop, or out of the loop. And I give some examples in the book that are very real and logical to national security specialists showing how in in a given normal everyday context, humans are all of the three while you're using the same AI application. I worry that if you say, oh, a human's in the loop, everybody say, good, We're all set there, no worries there. And just like I worry that now that we've all promulgated our AI principles, policymakers will walk away and say, good, we're very ethical, we have principles, no worries there. But as we'll talk about, I'm sure in a couple of minutes, lots of worries to come. Uh, The hard part is implementing those principles, not coming up with them. If you read DOD regulations, they talk about appropriate human control. Now, appropriate is the word you're taught at the State Department if you're doing a treaty and you're not sure what you want to commit to. You just put appropriate in every other, you know, every third word is the word appropriate. The hard part is determining what is appropriate human control 
in each specific context. That's the work of lawyers. That's the work of policymakers. That's the work that we have to get on with. So I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about lethal autonomous weapon systems, A, because it is one of the most interesting debates, at least to me, because people are very, very concerned about the Terminator type weapons and catastrophizing about the end of humanity and trying to set policy around these kind of really bleak futures. Can we just talk a little bit about how realistic these things are? You talk about a kind of a constellation of technologies. Each one of these systems that would go into a Terminator style machine would need to reach the apogee of of effectiveness and be able to work completely together in order to come up with such a weapon system. How close are we to this? And And how do you see this technology slash arms race playing out? Thank you, uh, Yvette, for bringing up lethal autonomous weapons. Uh, I was hoping we would not discuss, but fair enough, uh, because much like superintelligence, lethal autonomous weapons systems tend to drive the debate. We as specialists have to contend with that because a lot of people's impressions about AI, whether well-founded or not, are predicated on their impressions about so-called killer robots or their their impressions about uh, so-called superintelligence. One of the things we can do as specialists is try and put both fears, concerns, and other aspects of that into context and address them, not eliminate them necessarily, but address them. First, we've had autonomous weapons for a long time now, uh, depending on how you define those terms. And any good lawyer can define something in or out uh, but we've certainly had weapon systems that, um, when deployed, are uh, act in an autonomous manner for some time. One of the issues here is, is defining exactly what we're concerned about and what we mean when we refer to autonomy. And I think generally what people are concerned about is a weapon system that is not only autonomous when authorized to fire, but in some manner is autonomous in its decision to authorize itself to fire. That's point one, make sure we know what we're talking about, which problem are you solving or addressing? Because if you say you're just dealing with killer robots, we're gonna be all over the place. Point two, one of the risks with AI, and AI in the national security space in particular, is a counterintelligence risk. There are a number of people who spend a great deal of time on this. I covered specifically in the book one of the risks you have is if you're going to use an AI system, whether it's a, uh, a weapon system, an intelligence system, a logistics system, you need to be confident that it's going to work as intended, not just because you want to make sure the software works as intended, but also you want to make sure the other guy didn't mess with it in a way that will cause it to work, uh, not work as intended. So counterintelligence is a huge issue with artificial intelligence, potentially. Third point. Unlike some areas of artificial intelligence, we have a legal regime, we have principles that we have long had that apply to lethal autonomous weapon systems, however you define the term. And those principles are found in the law of armed conflict. We have the doctrine of command responsibility. Uh, We have Article 36, which is the requirement to validate and test new methods and means of warfare to ensure their compliance with the law of armed conflict. So in in a funny way, the thing that makes people most nervous in some circles is also the area of AI that comes with the most law and tested regulation. 
in the form of requirements for training, in the form of Article 36, in the form of command responsibility. One of the questions, which I guess is point four here that I have for the general national security policy audience is, which of these principles that already applies to the law of armed conflict, to the military use of weapons, should we adopt and apply by metaphor or analogy to AI more generally? So, for example, if you have the doctrine of command responsibility, might we have a doctrine of AI responsibility and draw some of the same principles from command responsibility that applies in a military context and apply those same principles in a civilian context uh, to the national security uses of AI, that sort of thing. If we have Article 36 that requires us to test new weapons and methods of warfare, why not have a similar requirement for new systems of AI, new systems of AI that are going to be used for facial recognition or new systems of AI that are going to be used for intelligence early warning? Shouldn't we validate these so we don't end up with a Petrov or Brzezinski scenario? So let me leave it at that. I'm trying to get you off the lethal autonomous weapon system, not because it's not critical and important, but because uh, there's so much work to be done. And that is an area where I actually think there is law and regulation already to apply. Uh, We have to apply it. The last point, um, I guess, is is point five. Are lethal autonomous weapon systems coming? As I indicated, depending on how you define the term, they're already here. But there's no question that there's AI-enabled systems like swarms that are coming. And I would draw the audience's attention to the recent DARPA competition where a AI pilot uh, defeated a human F-16 pilot five out of five times in a dogfight. Now, one of the reasons it was able to do so was because the mathematically computationally driven AI algorithm was able to calculate the performance characteristics of the aircraft to the edge of capacity, right? The, the human doesn't know that exact edge that the plane will disintegrate if it turns too quickly or, or, or so on, but the AI could calculate that in a way a human could not and do it in the moment. Secondly, the AI feels no fear in perhaps in a scenario like this, the pilot didn't either, but in the real world, the pilot would feel human fear. The algorithm would not feel that fear and thus would have an advantage in a dogfight like that. But what the algorithm could not do was talk to another plane, talk to a human, know whether it had been penetrated perhaps by a counterintelligence tool. So one of the things DARPA was quick to point out or the commentators were was, yes, certain aspects of this may be coming, uh, but it hasn't all been sorted through. And DOD has talked about the illities, reliability, compatibility, Um, and so on. There's a whole list of them that the DOD Science Board came up with, and those have to be mastered before these these potential systems are really able to be fielded and fielded safely and wisely. Again, will the opponent, potential opponent, feel the same way? Uh, That's one of the issues. That's where law and regulation comes in in policy discussion. So we're discussing some law, the law of armed conflict, but there's got to be more than just the law of armed conflict that applies in this space. And one of the things that we've talked about previously on this podcast, and I'm certain that we've discussed it at length at the committee, is the fact that technological developments are undoubtedly 
outpacing sort of the legal response and the policy response. And some would say they're happening at such a speed that they're outpacing the ability of lawmakers to keep up with and understand them in order to make meaningful laws. But let's talk about that in the context of AI and let's start at the very beginning. Okay, we've discussed the law of armed conflict and how it might apply, but if you could be more precise about that and where do you see the gaps where the law of armed conflict doesn't apply and sort of query small added to this is most of the weapon systems and and planes and everything else are actually developed if they're not built by private defense contractors. So wondering sort of what their role would have to be and thoughts on that regard. Good. Thank you for that question. As I like to say, Moore's law always outpaces case law and statute. And Moore's law is a, a principle about how quickly circuitry advances and at what speed. It's one of the things that has allowed AI to materialize as it has, along with many other technological innovations. Even if AI weren't moving along at exponential rates, we already know that law usually moves in a linear manner. And, you know, appellate courts such as my own were thinking they were very up to speed by doing iPhone cases in 2011. And that's not exactly cutting edge technology at that point, but the law does move more slowly. What does that tell us we should do? It tells us we should try not to answer every substantive question in the form of law, but we should create processes, much like the Constitution itself, that will help us in the context presented in the future, come up with more wise and beneficial substantive answers to the problem presented. What also happens uh, when the law is not clear in an area, we can stipulate that the Communications Act in 1936 did not have AI in mind. Uh, The All Writs Act in 1789 did not have AI in mind, right? Most, Most of the laws we deal with today did not have AI in mind. So what happens? One, you tend to use the law you do have and you either hammer it in to the hole or whatever the right metaphor is. And some of the law we do have includes the Defense Production Act, which I cover in some detail in the book and have covered in a fair bit of detail in a report for CSET called a DPA for the 21st century, securing America's AI national security innovation base. So you take the law you have and either you use it as it is or better yet, you update it. IEPA will be important and the Invention Secrecy Act will be important. Most national security lawyers are not specialists in the Invention Secrecy Act or for that matter, the DPA. Time to get smart on those laws now. Constitutional law is elevated when you do not have statutory law or case law on point, because you always have the constitution. And with AI, we have an array of issues that emerge in the First Amendment area, the Fourth Amendment area, don't you know it? Hello, Carpenter. Uh, The Fifth Amendment area and the Sixth Amendment area. I cover each of these in the book, hopefully in plain language that policymakers will understand and therefore allow them to ask the right questions about what they're designing, what they're using, and what they're evaluating. What else happens? When you don't have law on point, 
and the policy process is not stepping into the void, decisions tend to get made, if they're made at all, through litigation. That's your San Bernardino Apple iPhone scenario, where there was no resolution on the so-called backdoor issue. So it was going to be resolved on a case-by-case litigation method. I don't want the FBI any more than I want Apple making national security policy. I want the constitutive processes of the United States to make those decisions, the executive policymaking process, the legislative branch of government with judicial oversight and review. Litigation tends to put people in their corners and accents the specific interests and views of singular parties and entities. Um, We need a legislative process to address these issues. And then the other thing that happens when there is no law on point, we look for metaphor and analogy. And that's why I talk about the law of armed conflict in the book, not just for the military uses of AI, um, where the law of armed conflict is applicable, but also as potential metaphor for other areas of AI. I talk about arms control. Again, not because AI is an arm, but we might learn something from how we addressed arms control, such as confidence building measures. How can we embed confidence building measures into our current AI technology contest with China? What should law address when it addresses it? It should address three of the big issues. Uh, One is this issue, the centaur's dilemma. In each context, what should be the human role and what should be the machine role and how should they interact? That's the centaur's dilemma. Data, who can collect it, who can use it, how can they use it for how long and going back how far? This is both an issue that should be addressed to governmental uses, but also private uses and academic uses. And then bias. And when we use the word bias in the AI field, we are talking about the bias that lawyers might recognize in an equal protection context that might come up in facial recognition applications that are better at identifying one gender or the other. But we're also talking about all the different forms of bias that come into the AI field, design bias, data bias. There's there's a list of about 10 different types of bias that are not sort of the legal bias that we tend to think of, but the different ways that algorithms and AI will not be as accurate as it might be for both purposeful reasons, but also unintended reasons based on how they're designed and what they're trained on. So law has to address those three big issues. And let me leave it at that for the moment and see if you would like to respond or ask me the next question, which is, can you be more specific? Anyway. (laughs) Can you be more specific? (laughs) (laughs) It happens that I have a handy list of recommendations for law policy and ethics. Why do I want that? Why immediately? For, For three reasons. One, it is law and ethics that will distinguish the democratic use of AI from the authoritarian use of AI. It could distinguish it, but only if we use it and use law and ethics wisely. But that's going to be a distinguishing characteristic if we do so. Two, and this is a message for national security policy makers, law and ethics, by eliminating bias, mitigating bias, by making sure the right data sets are being used in the right way, 
by making sure that humans are making decisions where they should and not where they shouldn't in a manner that would impede the advantage of AI. These things all will lead to better AI, more accurate AI. If you eliminate bias, you get more accurate AI. So the national security policymaker should want law and ethics because they should want more accurate AI as a national security tool, which will lead to a better national security result. So this is an area where the lawyers and the policymakers not only are on the same team, but have the same goals, should have the same goals. There's a synergy here. Um, and then the third reason is this is all happening now. And what happens when states get think either do or perceive that they have an advantage, they don't wanna go back and take that advantage off the table. So the time to embed wise and thoughtful law and regulation, both on a domestic front and on an international front, the time to do that is now before everybody's vested in particular outcomes and doesn't want to do it, or before we wish well, we will have wished we had done it. Those are three big takeaways for law and ethics. As for my list, I will now do a dramatic reading of 150 different things we should now be doing. <laughs> um, but but that, rather than do that, let me give you a few examples. For me, better results often come from having the right process in play, right? You wanna have the right people in the right process. We need to create governmental systems that both cut across the three key pillars of AI development, which is the government industry and academia. And within the government, we need to have processes uh, that lead to these legal and policy issues being resolved and being resolved in a timely manner. And I think it is of note here that the Biden administration has established on the National Security Council staff a directorate for emerging technologies and national security. That's a good indicator. I note as well that Jason Matheny is at OSTP and also uh, a deputy national security advisor in the area of emerging technologies. These are good things. These are indicators that there is a process developing for addressing these tough policy and legal questions. Lawyers need to change how they operate. They need to be able to operate upstream and downstream and not just at the moment of decision. What does that mean? Upstream means that you are providing guidance to those who are designing AI, guidance in terms of how to mitigate bias, guidance in terms of what's lawful or what's not lawful at the point of design, because it's too hard to unpack that later on. Downstream means AI is an iterative instrument, right? It learns from itself, machine learning, machines learn, and they learn how to improve their own performance. The Google algorithm is a living algorithm. It's not humans changing it every day. It's the algorithm changing itself as well. So that means lawyers have to work downstream and make sure they're validating uh, the AI system as it continues to get better, we hope, and continues to be used. I mentioned that we need to address the centaur's dilemma, but do so in each specific context. We need to work on the area of verification, right? You can't have law and you can't have international agreement, binding or otherwise, without knowing what it is you can verify in the AI space and what you cannot. And here I'm very happy to report that Matt Middlestead, who is one of our team members on the Syracuse Institute, um, has written the first. I'm a little surprised it's the first. I'm a little alarmed it's the first, but he's written the first 
uh, paper that I'm aware of talking about the different methodologies, technical methodologies that could be used uh, to verify certain aspects of how AI is designed and how it is used. But we need much more work in that verification space. I like the idea of privacy and AI impact statements. That's figuring out what the thing's gonna do before it does it, uh, before you wish you hadn't done it or before you wish you'd done it a different way. That's an idea that's out there, privacy and or AI impact statements, like environmental impact statements, but that will scare most people away. We gotta move beyond principles to actual application of principles. Now we have to decide what to put into law or embed in policy or just leave as principle. And here we might say, what are, what are our red lines? Where do we want to have red lines? So one red line that some people have suggested is uh, something to do with killer robots. But another red line might be no AI attached to nuclear warning systems or how we use deep fakes, when we're going to permit deep fakes to be used at a, at a government level, if at all. First use principles, how we deal with secondary effects. A secondary effect to me is something like this. You have an AI algorithm that is intended to collect information on X. It collects data on a particular policy issue or, or, or angle, perhaps medical information. But it turns out the data also reveals something else. How are you going to deal with the something else? It reveals that I don't pay my taxes when it was designed for some other purpose, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and, and as I indicated, we have to have all sorts of data rules, rules, regulations, and laws for example, why not NIST standards on what data is allowed to be used when and how uh, for training certain kinds of algorithms? The EU is, is looking at a draft regulation that would require certain things to happen with high-risk AI and certain other things with lower-risk AI. So if you're going to use AI for, for something that can impact rights and liberties, you have to use certain level of data and certain level of, of review, for example. Right, um, because there there was that case that where there was the first kind of wrongful arrest and out of Detroit of a person who was identified with an AI system. So again, this is the centaur's dilemma, which is, are you going to let the AI, are you going to act upon the AI output alone, or are you going to have human verification? In some cases, AI may verify the human thought. But I view this, I use the metaphor of a confession corroboration. Judges would never let you come in with just a confession. They'd ask you to corroborate it. And so um, don't come to Jamie Baker with your AI output and say, here's the answer. What you're giving me is a prediction about a probability, but I'm going to say, good, now let's inform that with some human judgment. Just like I will want the AI algorithm to determine if my tumor is malignant or uh, benign, but I don't want the AI to print out a little form that says, by the way, you have terminal cancer. I want the human to tell me that and explain why I'm the exceptional case for which there will be an exception. We'll link to that case because that was the argument that the Detroit police were making was that the AI system was misused when they acted um, on their recommendation and arrested the wrong person. So we'll link to that new story, but go ahead. Uh, please do. Again, that's a process issue, right? That's a centaur's dilemma and a process issue. We must have policy and legal debates now about what we know is coming about facial recognition and other controversial use of predictive algorithms. I'm probably going to get myself in trouble here, 
but the debate over the New York City police Boston Dynamics dog, I thought was fairly silly. They trot, so to speak, trotted it out uh, for one use, and it was viewed as very controversial. And then they said they wouldn't use it again. I'm just relying on media reports here. I'm in favor of using all tools that will minimize human risk and casualty, but use them wisely. Uh, we've used robots uh, for bomb detection purposes forever, and I would rather have the AI dog. Uh, and, and the only reason it was a dog and looked like a dog was because it was designed to go up and down steps. But I would rather have that dog look around the corner and see if there was a bomb or a shooter there uh, than the human, because the human is less likely, the, the police officer may make a human decision that is wrong or put someone at risk, the dog uh, will not. So the question is, I think the fault here was not being able to explain uh, immediately and wisely how the AI-driven robot was being used, why it was being used, and with what safeguards and protections to make sure it wasn't going to be used in a big brother sort of manner. So that's an example of how we need to have these legal and policy debates and do so in a transparent manner now. We need to stop ducking the hard First Amendment issues. Algorithms are going to search for threats on the internet and in other platforms, and we need to figure out when we're looking at questions of domestic terrorism, what is it the algorithm can look for and when? I think it'd be very helpful for national security specialists uh, and technologists to define with specificity what it is we mean by bias so that those who are designing these things and those who are, who are deciding when and how to use them understand how AI can be accurate and how it can be inaccurate. And thank you, Judge Baker, for coming by. Dear listener, if your curiosity is not piqued, I, I will have to ask whether or not you are a sentient artificial intelligence, honestly. Um, thank you for this fascinating conversation. Uh, thank you very much. And thank you for giving airtime to this most important issue. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today at National Security Law Today. We really appreciate you tuning in. You can check Judge Baker's bio out in the show notes, as well as the links to his book. And some of the laws that we discussed today will also be hyperlinked for those of you who recognize that this is a growth area, a place that if you're a young lawyer, you may want to focus your interest. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. We want to hear from you. You're going to see updates to our podcast based on listener comments. So keep your feedback coming in via Twitter at ABANATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. We'll be back next week with more content for you, including law and analysis. Take care of yourselves. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. 